morning. Well, our final two psalms in our overview of the book of Psalms are going to be Psalms 98 and 118 that we're going to cover today. We're going to read Psalm 98 first, and it's a familiar song because it's regularly sung here at the church. Let's stand as we read together Psalm 98. O sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. Let the sea roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing for joy together before the Lord. For he comes to judge the earth and he will judge the world with righteousness and his peoples with equity. Let's pray. Father, what a... What a powerful and, and wonderful psalm to be reminded that the rivers clap their hands and the hills sing with joy and join with us in a chorus of praise before our God. Lord, may that be an attitude of our hearts today as we come to worship you, whatever the cares may be that have burdened us this week and beyond, I pray that they would be lightened today by the fact that you are king. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Well, what has been our journey this far through the Psalms? If you think through what we have learned over the course of our time together, we began with Psalm 1, and we learned that the book of Psalms is not to be treated as a hymnal in which are collected individual separate psalms but rather to be treated as a book that has a cohesive theme and purpose. And we further learned that Psalm 1 as the beginning psalm serves as a compass that points us in the direction and to the purpose of the whole book. In Psalm 1, we are placed at a juncture, on a path, at a crossroads, and we are asked a question, do you want to be blessed and filled with joy? And then we are instructed to make a choice. Based upon our answer, Psalm 1 fills us with expectation that the rest of the book with the many psalms that follow will be our instruction book that lights the path of the blessed one. And with that expectation in place, we began to look at life through the psalmist, particularly David's perspective. We realized that the path of the blessed one is not always an easy one. In fact, it's a difficult path. Psalm 1 shares with us that the sinner, scoffer, and mocker want us to stand and walk and sit with them. But then Psalm 2 reveals that when we refuse to go down that path, that they rage against the Lord and against us. And we read many psalms that described what it means to stand against the onslaught of raging nations. It sometimes means despair. As we saw in the psalms of lament. Psalm 22 in particular was difficult where we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving 
me from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest, and yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you, our fathers, trusted. They trusted and you delivered them to you. They cried and were rescued you. It rescued and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. And yet you are he who took me from the womb, and on you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. And we saw a psalm like that. We saw the faith in the midst of trial and persecution, a lesson that we learned over and over again during our study this year. In reading psalms like Psalm 22, we also realize that there is another voice that runs through the psalms. To whom belong the words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Not just David. They're also the words of the son of David, the coming Christ. And we realize that the Psalms are not just a guidebook for life, but also a prophetic picture of the one who would come, the future king. We'll do more on that in just a moment, but it's still helpful to have read many of the Psalms, right, that describe the challenges of life. Challenges like anger, anxiety, fear, depression, and more. We saw them all in the Psalms. And as Psalm 78 reminds us, the lessons of the path are to be learned by us and then shared with the next generations. We need to learn how those before us dealt with these same challenges and how easy it was for them to turn back to comfort or to run in cowardice or to give in to the despair. And the Psalms remind us time and again that God waits to show himself strong to those who fear him and obey him. And perhaps no psalm was more comforting in that regard than when we looked at Psalm 18 and read, In my distress I called upon the Lord, and to my God I cried for help. From his temple he heard my voice, and my cry reached his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked, The foundations also of the mountains trembled and quaked because he was angry and smoke went up from his nostrils, devouring fire from his mouth, glowing coals flamed forth from him and he bowed the heavens. He came down, thick darkness was under his feet and he rode on a cherub and flew swiftly on the wings of the wind. He rescued me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but my Lord was my support. He brought me into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. And what an amazing lesson it is in Psalm 18 to see how David can use the most illustrative, powerful image he can to describe what God does when he comes down to rescue his child. What encouraging news it is for those who are weary from the fight, trying to stand firm against the nations that rage against God and them, to know that God delights in His children and will move heaven and earth to rescue them in His distress. Even though there are times when it seems that God is distant and far away, 
as the psalmist shares in Psalms 10 and 13 and others, yet our God knows where we are at all times and what we need, just as we learned last week in Psalm 139. And what begins to emerge in the book of Psalms is this picture on the one hand of life with all of its messiness and all of its challenge, and on the other hand, the sufficiency of God. Not only his sufficiency, but his willingness to help us and the expectation of the coming Messiah King. And as we read through each psalm, we recognized more and more the need for a final solution for God's salvation. Yes, Psalm 130 taught us a few weeks ago to confess and repent, for example, but is there a final solution? What will solve all of these anxieties and these fears? What will deal with the problem of the wicked? What will make the life of being planted as a tree against the raging of those nations worth it? Well, that's where a psalm like Psalm 98, our morning's passage, comes in together with parallel psalms like Psalm 96 and 110 and 118. Getting back to Psalm 98, the first verses invite us to sing to the Lord a new song. Why a new song? Because God's right hand and His holy arm have brought salvation. He has remembered His steadfast love and faithfulness. And Israel isn't the only one that is invited to sing. The whole earth is invited to join in. In verse 4, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Break forth in praise. In fact, the rest of the book of the Psalms is filled with psalms of praise for this very reason. For as verse 6 says, make a joyful noise before the King, the Lord. And as verse 9 says, He comes to judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The King is coming. The expectation isn't just introduced in the prophetic books of the Old Testament. It's not just revealed in the Gospels. It's also here in the Psalms. It begins, like I said, all the way back in Psalm 2, where God instructs the nations to kiss the sun, lest they be destroyed. And it continues in Psalm 110, where we read these amazing words, The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. After the order of Melchizedek, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And those are amazing words. And David says prophetically that God, the Lord, with capital letters, Yahweh said to his king, the Lord Adonai, to sit at his right hand. And this is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. And it's not about David but about David's Lord, King Jesus, his future son. The one who would be after the order of Melchizedek and be a priest forever. He would be the one to shatter kings on the day of his wrath and execute judgment 
and righteousness and equity as we see in Psalm 98. And then in our second passage of the morning, Psalm 118, we read these words in verses 21 through 29. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. I will give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This, project, this progression in the Psalms is amazing as we go from Psalm 1 and that, that crossroads in the path and then the constant question of, what, but what about these challenges of life? Is it worth it? Is it worth it not to sit, stand, and walk with the sinner, scoffer, and mocker? Is it worth it to stand and go against traffic as the nations rebel and fight against the king? Is it worth it to keep trying to struggle through mastering anger and anxiety and fear and all of the things and despair and depression and all, all the, the middle psalms? But by the time we get here in the book, there is a momentum that is developed. There's an inertia towards this expectation of coming salvation, the coming king. And there can't help but be the finale of praise that we see in the last many psalms of the book. One commentator I read this week makes this comment. He says, we can say that the whole of the book of Psalms is eschatological. And that means, among other things, that the book of Psalms is driving the original audience towards a future point. And he says, one purpose of the Psalms was and is to create a sense of hope that one day the king would come to put everything in our lives and in the world in right order once and for all. They create an expectation of the king in two senses. In one sense, the expectation is that the future king is the Lord. In another sense, he is the Messiah. And we did see in, in Psalm 110 how David calls this future king the Lord, his Lord. But do we see that in other psalms, as the commentator suggests? We do. First, though, you may remember last month in our study of Psalms 29 and 93, how the Lord sits enthroned over the flood. A phrase that we discovered means that he is sovereign over all things, including the worst possible situation in the Jewish mind, which was a world covered in chaos and disorder. God can bring order and purpose to a flooded world. He can separate the waters. He can create spaces for his people. He can give them purpose and give them a commission and bring them joy. God has always reigned. He reigns over the mighty waters that raise up against him. He reigns over the nations. He reigns over us. So how is there a sense in which there is a new and future reign that is any different? Since he has always reigned from eternity past. Well, Psalm 98 implies that something new has happened. And that God is reigning in an additional way. 
And this is a new song because God, the king who sits on his throne, has brought salvation. His kingship has taken on this new dimension by including redemption. And so we look at something like Revelation eleven fifteen, and we read, Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. And we see how the Apostle John says that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Yes, God has always reigned from eternity past. He has always sat enthroned, but in bringing salvation and then judgment, God's reign advances in a new and powerful way. Just as verse 17 says, you have taken your great power and begun to reign. And you notice, didn't you, the reference to Psalm 2? The nations raged. (laughs) It's in past tense. The nations raged. And what did it matter? It was like a puff of smoke. It was like a whisper in the wind. Like chaff blowing away. The result, judgment. Your wrath came. The wicked were brought low. God's servants and his saints were rewarded. And the very things that the Psalms teach us to expect about the coming Lord, we are shown in Revelation. Yes, it happens. There was a time in which our ruler was the devil. John 12, 31 through 32 says, Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to himself, myself. The devil was once the ruler of this world in the sense that he was given this limited reign, of course, under the sovereignty of God. But when the true king came, this false ruler was cast out. And the true king drew all peoples to himself, which is to say that he saved them from their sins and made them citizens in his kingdom. And that is ultimately the real blessing of the Psalms. Do you want to be blessed? You were asked at the very beginning. Do you want to be a citizen of God's kingdom? Everything is made possible, particularly in an eternal way by the coming of the Lord who brings salvation. Such good news from the Psalms. And if you don't think that the expectation that the king is coming is the Lord of salvation is clear enough in some of the Psalms we've already referenced what about thee? Psalm 96, 11 says, Let the heavens be glad, and the earth rejoice, the sea roar, all that fills it. Let the field exult, and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Again, just like Psalm 98, notice, the king is coming, and he will judge all people. 
But remember what we read in verse 9 of Psalm 98. He will judge the world with righteousness and his peoples with equity. Psalm 96 says it will be with faithfulness. There will be a day in which the king says, you deserved to face his wrath. But that his son, your Lord and king, experienced that wrath in your place. God is fair and just. And your sins, just as everyone else's sins, bore the penalty of death. But you are able to join your voice with the hills as they sing for joy and clap your hands with the rivers. I like how David said earlier in his prayer, the judgment of God comes out as faithful, useful, blessed, forgiven. But you are able in that moment, as you hear that, to recognize that what you deserved was death, what you deserved was judgment, the same as the wicked, but God is merciful. And how can you but respond but with joy and clap your hands with the rivers? That is not the hope of the wicked. At the beginning in Psalm 1, we learn that in the day of God's judgment, they will in fact blow away like chaff in the wind. And I said that the irony of that psalm, the irony of Psalm 1, is that the wicked, the sinful, the scornful, the mocker, well, all they want you to do in the short term is to stand and sit and walk with them to give affirmation to what they want and what they prize and value. They will one day want nothing more than to stand and sit and walk with you in God's presence in the judgment. And this is what makes the words of a passage like Psalm 37, starting in verse 5, so meaningful. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in Him and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way. Can you, can you see the big picture of the Psalms as we've covered them and, and appreciate something like this in Psalm 37? There's been a lot of fretting at times by the psalmists as they dealt with the problems of life, particularly as they dealt with the, the contrasting, tangible, visible, short-term view of the wicked prospering. But when we know the whole picture, when we know the king is coming, when we have the praise before us, how can we not read this differently in Psalm 37? Fret not yourself, because it tends only to evil. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Don't worry about that one who prospers in his way over the man who carries out evil devices. They shall be cut off. But those who wait... For the Lord shall inherit the land in just a little while. The wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The Lord will act. The king will come. But you must be still. You must wait patiently for him. You must stop the fretting. All will be set right. 
The commentator I quoted earlier said that the expectation of the future king is both that he comes as Lord, we've seen that in the Psalms, but also that he comes as Messiah. And we know that the concept of Messiah is brought out in the prophetic books, but how is it brought out in the Psalms? Well, the term Messiah in Hebrew means anointed one. It is the same term as Christ, Christos in the Greek. It refers to the one whom God would specially anoint to fulfill his covenant promises to his people. And so we read in a passage like Psalm 132, where this question is answered, will God remember his covenantal promises to his people? Well, this is what we read. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor, all the hardships he endured, how he swore to the Lord, vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. For the sake of your servant David, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. The Lord swore to David a sure oath from which he will not turn back. One of the sons of your body I will set on the throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies that I shall teach them, their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. And you hear that question. Lord, you promised David that you would send your anointed one who would sit on his father David's throne forever. And under his reign, we would be your people forever. Will you remember us? Will you send the one who will not only rule over us in righteousness, but enable us to be faithful? And interestingly, the Lord answers the question himself in Psalm 132, a few verses later. He says, this, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her province her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. And there I will make a horn to sprout for David. That, that prophetic imagery of, of horn and branch and stone that we see in books like Isaiah and Ezekiel and Zechariah and others is here in the Psalms too. I will make a horn to sprout for David. I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but on him his crown will shine. And so you see it, this, this abundant life, this salvation, this joy. John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, when he regained his voice after his son's birth, had this to say about the coming Messiah, Jesus, in Luke 1. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation. Right from that psalm for us in the house of his servant, David. And then Jesus' arrival also made sense of Psalm 118.22. As I said, that, that imagery of the stone that causes the people to stumble. That stone that is the capstone, that is the cornerstone. In Psalm 118 says that this stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Well, the Messiah was the cornerstone that held the temple, which would become God's people together but the builders, the nation of Israel, rejected their Messiah. The very one God was telling the people through the Psalms to expect the coming king was crucified and murdered. 
And ironically, on Palm Sunday, as Jesus rode into the city of Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, he is greeted as a messianic king, just as we find in Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they're saying as they wave their palm branches. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. But within days, they are shouting for his crucifixion. Because as much as they knew the Psalms, as much as they knew that in the Psalms was the expectation of the coming king as Lord and as Messiah, yet they did not fully know the Psalms. They didn't understand things like Psalm 118 and Psalm 22 and so many others. That's why God, as he inspires through his spirit, the gospel writers to write the Gospels, why these phrases are so familiar to us because they want us to understand it was already there. That's why Jesus on the road to Emmaus, as he explains how he's found in the Old Testament writings, he was there in the Psalms, in the prophetic books, even as far back as Genesis, crushing the head of the serpent. So the king came and he lived and he died, but that was not the end. It was only the beginning. And he rose again. Suffering was necessary, but it was the means to the real end. The everlasting reign of the anointed son of David is the real end. And in hindsight, we can see how all of that fits together. We can see the reigning of the son at the right hand of the father. And Revelation 21 has this good news. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven... And the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And this is everything that the psalmist hoped for. This is everything that we hope for. God's salvation brought by his right hand and his holy arm. God dwelling with man. The messianic king enthroned. Not just over the flood, but in the presence of his people. The fears, the depression, the despair, the anger, the anxiety, all resolved. Even death shall be no more. No more mourning, no more crying, no more pain. And some of Jesus' final words to all of us were those recorded in their verse 7 of chapter 22. Behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And we have that word at the end, blessed, even as we had it at the beginning in Psalm 1. Do you want to be blessed? Well, part of that blessing is not just to meditate upon God's precepts, which certainly is an important part of the book of Psalms, but also to look forward and hope to the coming king. He came and he is coming again. And is there any wonder that the remaining Psalms of the book are praise. And so I close with this final psalm. 
fittingly, Psalm 150. And I invite you to say it with me loudly. Praise the Lord. Praise God in His sanctuary. Praise Him in His mighty heavens. Praise Him for His mighty deeds. Praise Him according to His excellent greatness. Praise Him with trumpet sound. Praise Him with harp. Praise Him with tambourine and dance. Praise Him with strings and pipe. Praise Him with resounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud clashing cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, You are a gracious and kind God. Thank You for setting for us the tone and and the scope of the book from the very beginning as we began to ask us, do we want to be blessed? We do. How You called upon us to stop fretting even as you acknowledge that this is such a challenge for us, even as it was for the psalmist. And we felt an empathy. We felt an understanding in the psalms that we read. And yet we were propelled forward into the reminder that you move heaven and earth to rescue your child. We are reminded that you knew us and formed us in our mother's womb. We are reminded that you desire to comfort and bring salvation to your people and that you will reign and while the nations rage, you will answer in your wrath. And Father, as we meditate upon all that we've discovered, I pray that this would settle with us so strongly the sense that you are not only our God, but that you have called us your possession and you have said, I will dwell with my people. What a wonderful thing to to see that there's no need anymore for the light of the sun for the light of the true sun lights the great city, the eternal city in which we will be with our God and our God will be with his people. And so it's in your son's precious name that we pray these things. Amen. Amen.